Oh my god. I'm gonna answer for that at the pearly gates. <laughs> yeah. Uh so look, you, you lived a good life and uh had a bitchin' podcast and uh yeah. you know, did a lot of great writing. But And that uh, all go bodes well here in film heaven. Uh says here that uh you purchased every Saw sequel on Blu-ray. <laughs> DVD. DVD Oh DVD. Okay, alright. <laughs> we'll uh Alright, we'll let you in. But, <laughs> yes. but you must watch Uwe Boll's entire filmography first. <laughs> so I must spend, you know, a dozen hours in hell first. In hell watching Uwe Boll films. <laughs> and then I can get into film heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to watch Postal. I don't want to watch Postal. Oh my Postal. god. Oh. The Big Show. Hello and welcome to Talking During the Movie, the show where two jackoffs talk about new movies and movie news. I'm James. And I'm Mike. And this is episode 76, We Steal Secrets, the story of Mike and James. Whew. I'm sorry to... I think I'm I got to, that right. Yeah, you did. You nailed it. And I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to bring Julian Assange into this. Um, <laughs> this was Mike's idea. This was my idea. Um, and... Uh, the only oh, reason dude, maybe we'll get more more of those alt right audience. Oh God. Well, the reason, I, yeah, because they like Julian Assange now, despite <laughs> the fact that they didn't before. Um, because he's. It's he, all about he, favors, man. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Yeah, I guess you just got to get dirt on the people you hate, and then then you like. The them. enemy of my enemy is my friend. I learned that from Alien vs Predator. Mm-hmm. Truly, the. Uh, art of war of its day um, <laughs> i know i was just thinking there's probably like a thousand better places i could have heard that quote for the yeah, first time absolutely. but no it was although, alien versus predator although uh you know the the famous quotes um uh keep your friends close but your enemies closer mm-hmm. it's you know the first time i heard that was godfather 2 and i was like so convinced that it came from somewhere else and even there's even like a root you know the internet it's kind of a widely perpetuated myth that it comes from sun tzu but it doesn't it's from Godfather 2. Wow. <laughs> Man, really like fucking on, awesome. It's kind of like on uh, in freshman year when I was eating at Chick-fil-A and I saw on the bag where it was like, we invented the chicken sandwich. I'm like, no. No, you come, didn't. Come on. <laughs> Except they actually fucking invented the chicken they sandwich. <laughs> yeah. I, I had that moment too. In fact, I think everyone who dines on Chick-fil-A has that moment of that moment of clarity where they realize yeah. that this is, this is the this is the OG. Yeah, this the very all first began. person to stick a piece of chicken between two pieces of bread it also found a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> that happened. Yeah. Yep. So, Who knew? Um, so, yes, I apologize for dropping... But also, the, the namesake of that title, uh, the documentary We Still Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks, um, is actually pretty fucking good. And, uh, you know, in a world where the most well-known Julian Assange film is... <laughs> The fifth estate or the fourth is it the fifth estate? I think it's the fifth estate. The fourth estate. The fifth estate. Is the fourth estate's journalism. Yeah. yeah. Um, the fifth estate. Um, more people need to see this. Uh, it's actually pretty, pretty good. It's a pretty good documentary. Generally, uh, it doesn't give you any oh, easy. Oh, sorry, you said the fifth estate. Then you said more people need to see this. I'm like, wait. Oh wait. no. No, I meant no, <laughs> no, no. Fewer no, people no. need to see that. Actually, but, no, people need to see that. More people need to see We Still Secrets. It doesn't give you any easy answers about Julian Assange, and admittedly, it's pre 
2016 election, but uh, yeah. still an informative documentary and has a lot to say about uh, uh, about leaking and uh, not the P kind, but you know the the, uh, the O kind. And uh, we're highbrow here. We're, we have highbrow, yeah. high intelligence analysis. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm talking during you, the movie. Come back. You come to the best. Um, but also, it, it fit the uh, the theme of one of the films we're going to talk about today. Um, my submission for a forgotten favorite that I wasn't sure uh, really counted as a forgotten favorite, but uh, James reassured me it did. And now he says he's got a new defense for calling it a forgotten favorite. It's, yes, uh, yes. It's it's if the glove doesn't know it, that's not it. Uh, no. <laughs> 2006's The Lives of Others, uh, winner of the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in 2006. Which is why I kind of thought it was probably <laughs> well known. And we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So um, we'll get there. But uh, I'm really excited to be able to talk about it. It's one of my favorites. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm curious to have a good discussion about it. We're also uh, we didn't have any uh, motivation to see any of the new films coming out. I know we're, we're skipping over a fair amount. We're skipping over uh, Ghost in the Shell and whatever the f- what else came out. It's, uh, Power Rangers movie. Power Rangers and uh, Chips came out. Also, oh God, um, did it? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I and think everyone already forgot about it. <laughs> isn't it like going in style? Is that the is that the bank robbery one? Is that what it's called? Oh, it's like it's like if if Hell or High Water was a shitty comedy starring um, Michael Caine, Alan Arkin, and Morgan Freeman. You know, because they're old. Michael Caine. Michael Caine, yeah. <laughs> so that's what they did. That's what they did. They're like, okay, these guys want to rob banks because banks are bad and they need money, and they're old. Oh god! And and they can't do it because they're old because it's funny. Oh no! <laughs> so they're like, get yeah, this so man a, a movie deal and a blowjob. <laughs> Suffice it to say, we weren't properly motivated to see them. So instead, we're going to talk about a film uh, came out last year, uh, toward the end of the year. It was relatively underseen, but and the, I actually the, saw it in twenty seventeen. So. Yeah, yeah, I did too. And uh, the, uh, but the, the response was insanely positive, and it was up for an Oscar. So it's you know, uh, it's I am not your Negro, the we've documentary got, uh, about James Baldwin. And we've had this in our bank, so to speak, for a while. Um, we have. And so, and uh, yeah. this is we're cashing in. You know, <laughs> I'm yeah. making a withdrawal right now. We're falling on hard times. We are. Um, Bit of a slump right now. Also, uh, James, you can move this in the end product if you want, or you just cut it out. But I just I don't want to forget. Um, is there also any chance that you might be able to see your name for next week? My Have you heard name. of your name? It's no. called your name, James. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to do an Evan Luke Costello thing here. Um, God damn it, James! <laughs> <laughs> Who is on first? <laughs> Am I going to see James? I've never heard of that movie. Oh, it's, um, so. Have you heard of your name? No, I haven't. Uh, so I'm just doing a quick googling right now. Um, the, uh, it has become the highest-grossing Japanese film of all time. Um, Whoa! And okay. It came, out, came out last year, but it's getting a wide release here in the states now. And uh, I've been seeing a lot of reviews for it, and they've all been pretty fucking positive. So. Okay. And you said um, it's Japanese. It's Japanese. It's an anime film. Do we do we review Japanese films? Do we care about? Oh, I mean, like, are they films? Uh, barely, but uh, you know, we got to. They count. No. <laughs> they count, James. They count. They just okay, all right. Barely. That's fine. Sure. 
Um, so anyway, I just uh, wanted to throw that out there. If you can see that, uh, yeah, no, that uh, if I if I can see that, that'll be fun, and then we will we will watch it. Still do it at some point. If you can't see it right now, we could still do it later. Man, I gotta say, I've been thinking about like so many times. I've been thinking about like changing up the formula. Like I'm trying to end on telling them, telling people of this of this show. I'm trying to end on telling people, you know, where they can find us. You know, subscribe to us on iTunes. It's, you know, the standard like. The standard podcast stuff you're supposed Definitely, to Definitely, all of our social links. and Yeah, so then I'm like, okay, well, we should probably start with our, like, you know, introduction. You know, like, I'm, you know, James, I write for Game Revolution, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, wait, doesn't that undermine the whole we're two jackoffs thing? The thing that, you know, you, who we are yeah. is not important. You know, a hero can be anybody. No, not that last part. Um, um, <laughs> I'm not wearing hockey pants. <laughs> Thanks, I always appreciate a good reference secured. Um, so, yeah, so I don't think, uh, you know, unless it's like, who are we? Who cares? I don't think that's going to be part of the show anytime. But while we're here, subscribe to us on iTunes. Now let's go on to movies and stuff. Movies and stuff. Yeah. Um, so last week, which I suppose, no, it actually yeah. was last week. We we talked about beating the beast a bit. Um and there was some inaccuracies uh, by, let's just call him like the lesser co-host of of talking. Uh, no. <laughs> God, <laughs> I kid. Okay, all right. I kid. Look, I, I fucked up, and I'm going to own up to it right now. Okay, one of my, in fact, this was a point of beating the beast. I felt so strongly about. Um, I forgot to mention it initially, but I did stop the podcast in its tracks mm-hmm. to. At a completely, uh, you know, we had moved on. We were I think it was after my life review. It was, and I just like, you know, no, fuck this. I, I have to, I have to get this out about Beauty and the Beast. There's a scene where the, you know, Belle after, after Belle leaves to go help her father, and the Beast has a new song, and it's about how Belle's going to come back to him, and he's super stoked and happy about that, and it just totally undercuts and ruins the, uh, the, the tone of the original scene and what that scene's supposed to signify. I was wrong. Okay. I was wrong. That song that the beast sings is not about how bell will come back to him. That song is about how the memory of bell will forever haunt his mind and the castle and how basically he's, he's doomed to be tortured by this, this love that will never be for the rest of his life, which is inarguably a more fitting song. And yes. one that I improperly, uh, uh, I, I improperly characterized interpreted before. Yeah, I, I wrongfully characterized it before, and I'm owning up to that. However, <laughs> a big one, a big one, and this will lead into our discussion. I did. I, I will defend my my misunderstanding. Admittedly, a misunderstanding. I'm not saying I wasn't wrong. But I will defend it on two fronts and still will will come out of this disliking intensely that song. One, there well, is This a, song, by the way, is called Evermore. It's um, called Evermore. Yeah. When he says, I know she'll never leave me. That the lyric, yeah, number one, the lyric in the song that I latched onto when I was watching it in the movie theater and did not, I did not look up the lyrics after the fact. The, the lyric I latched onto was, and sh- I know she'll never leave me. And admittedly, he is not referring to Belle literally, physically, corporeally, never leaving him, which obviously she is. In fact, they were probably trying to set up an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting uh, contrast there between that line and Belle literally leaving him. 
Um, and that's supposed to kind of communicate this tragic irony about the whole situation. Mm-hmm. I get that. However, number two, but you know, I, I didn't catch the other words and that was the most prominent line in the song to me. So I latched onto that one by mistake and didn't understand the metaphorical significance of it Two, And this is why I still am insistent that this is a bad song and the inspiration it, for the segment. and the inspiration for the segment. There is an underlying and very prominent tonal dissonance in how this song presents itself. It is unmistakably an upbeat song. It is all like you, like James said before the show, it is all major chords. Uh, there's a crescendo, there's big emotion and not in a way that is, uh, that is communicating <laughs> tragedy or sorrow or, no. or, or, you know, some sort of grand loss, mm. but like just a huge upswing of emotion, just this passion, this glee. And I swear to God, the beast is smiling while he's singing it. It's, I mean, that, that's probably maybe a bit harder to interpret, but I, I mean... It's hard to interpret, but that's I mean, how I, I, I did see... I saw the joy on his face. I, I read that into... And, and here's the thing. I, I understand completely what you're saying, and so much so I really wish that when I messaged this to you on Facebook, I... You know that you hadn't said uh, that you argued tonal dissonance because the next thing I was going to say was I completely understand why you why you thought this way because yeah. it sounds like a happy song it sounds like an optimistic upbeat hopeful song about how she's going to come back to him and I, another thing I said before the show you take out the lyrics that's a happy song it's not a somber yeah. song about how I've made the ultimate sacrifice losing you know giving up the one I love so she could be happy you know that's mm-hmm. not. What the song, not what the emotions it's, of the it's song not what it, trying, Yeah, it's not what the music's communicating. It might be but what this, the lyrics are saying, but the, but the music itself is has a different a different beat to its drum. Yeah, and this Literally. really got me thinking about the whole, the concept of tonal dissonance as, in general, as it's used throughout film. Because it's not, it's not inherently bad. It's not always... No. It's not always um, something to be derided in this way. We think, I think, and I'm joining you, we think for good reason that in Beauty and the Beast, the song Evermore belies belies its own lyrics, belies the sacrifice that that the Beast made because it sounds like he's going to be okay, you know, and that he didn't really do that much to himself in in allowing Belle to leave, and that's not the case. But... I had to think about well, when when is it okay that the score or a song doesn't match tone with what you're actually seeing? And you know, honestly, the first thing I thought about was something you had just brought to my attention, and I can't stop laughing when I think about it. Is Tuesday? T- Tuesday. In The Shining. <laughs> I was hoping. To oh. Tuesday. Oh my God. Okay, so I- I'll let you make your case, but I just want to introduce this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll get that I'm, to you. And I'm because I, I just want to, I just want to paint the the line of inspiration because I didn't come up with this. I got this from uh, an online reviewer, James Rolfe, uh, the angry video game nerd, uh, as he's probably more popularly known. But uh, he he was doing a review at one point of The Shining, and uh, he was he was made a point that it kind of affected how I view a particular <laughs> scene in that film forever now and uh it's the scene where wendy and uh danny are walking through the hedge maze earlier on in the film this is you know before anything really 
supernatural has explicitly happened. And, you know, it's a very eerie scene because, you know, they're walking through the hedge maze. Meanwhile, Jack is inside of, uh, inside the mansion and he's staring down at this miniature model of the hedge maze. And it really gives this impression of like, you know, it, it's a beautiful image and almost like Jack mm-hmm. is looking down on them, like a, almost like an omnipotent figure. Like, like they are just in his, you know, completely to, in his, uh, at his mercy. And, uh, there's this really eerie music playing and they're walking through the hedge maze and uh, it's just kind of keeps building and building and building. And then right at its peak, it cuts and the music goes and all that happens is a time card comes up that says Tuesday. <laughs> and, and James Rolfe at that point, you know, he was criticizing kind of scaring the audience over nothing. He's just like, ah, oh, no, not Tuesday. <laughs> now every time that scene plays, I have that in my head. That voice in your head, just, not Tuesday. Not Tuesday, no. Yeah. Well, and so this, it definitely, I thought about The Shining in that case, and I also thought about horror movies in general and how they use use the score to create a mood where there otherwise wouldn't be and why that's not a bad thing in the shining it especially isn't um because it just it's creating this general sense of unease sort of like the score is like a living component that that has its own sort of rising and falling action its own like setup and payoff and yeah what you're mm-hmm. visually seeing is tuesday uh what you're feeling is like Tuesday is going to bring the devil upon you, you know, in so many words and in so many different ways. And I mean, I'd actually, I thought about, um, I thought about, I recently interviewed the uh, composer for the horror video game um, Outlast, and he's doing for the sequel Outlast 2. Really great interview. His name's Samuel Laflamme. You can find the interview on, on GameRevolution.com. I, I'm sorry, I just plugged, but it's there. Damn it, you shill. I know, right? James. <laughs> the way he describes it, uh, composing for horror as a, as not horror, is almost, he doesn't use these words, but he it's almost like uh, anti-composing, in that you're not trying to, when you compose for horror, you're not trying to put together a you know, a cohesive score necessarily. You're trying to create sounds that human ear is not used to hearing, and which also helps create that unease that we're talking about. Um, they had done one thing where they used a violin bow on a cymbal, uh, on the edge of a cymbal that created a sound that sounded like a woman screaming. And they're like, this is our sound. You know, so they threaded that through a lot of their, a lot of the compositions throughout the game and throughout the, the sequel that's coming up. Um, um, I mean, hell, if you want to pull the pull, pull this conversation back to film a little bit, um, there's yeah, also definitely. another. There's a really um, probably the example in modern film that I can think of is uh, uh, virtually every film that Martin Scorsese's ever made. Um, <laughs> um, and you know, you know, there, there are some highlights uh, in particular, like the Layla scene in, in Goodfellas, where uh, it's kind of revealing all the the gangsters who were had been brutally murdered uh, after this huge bank heist so that, that they basically couldn't, they couldn't uh, trail, you know, they couldn't pick up the, the main gangster's trail. And uh, this, this really, you know, the, the chords of Layla, which are like, you know, really almost serene and upbeat and happy are playing over all this footage of, you know, dead gangsters being found in the trash and in freezers. And, um, <laughs> you know, this happens all the time in Wolf of Wall Street when uh, when Jordan and all the uh, all the bankers get nabbed and it's just 
playing like really fast hyped upbeat music um you know kind of clashing a bit with the you know with the moral i mean it, it is communicating something about jordan's state of mind but it's also kind of clashing with the uh, or, or like you know mrs robinson it's clashing with the seriousness of the situation they're facing um and scorsese actually has um talked about his, his inspiration for using music in this way that kind of clashes with the the true nature of what's going on and it's i unfortunately don't remember exactly which film it was it was a uh a pre-code gangster film. I'm not sure if it was the original Scarface or White Heat or or something. It was a film of that time, and there's a scene where um, you know, this this man had been kidnapped by gangsters, and the the gangsters contact his family and tell him that they're going to bring him home. And so they all get really excited. Um, you know, the mother puts on a, a record, and they you know they make dinner and light candles and get everything all nice. And you hear the record playing, and then they open the door when they hear a knock. And instead of their son being there alive, it's him in a body bag that tips down over into the room. Oof. And the music keeps, the music, this happy music keeps on playing. And uh, Scorsese just talked about how he was really blown away by how music can be used to just make that scene that much more horrific. Not by playing horrific music, but by keeping the keeping the, the music carried over from a, a, you know, when they were happy a moment earlier, keeping it playing during this horrific uh, event. And that made it all the more, you know, gruesome. And uh, he, yeah, he said that was the inspiration for how he used music a lot. And I, I think that's kind of speaking to a similar uh, sense of tonal distance where you, you use that contrast in order to emphasize uh, some sort of intense emotional response. And even, and on that note of contrast, I had thought about it more and I was like, the question came up in my mind, well, is something loud and building always inherently optimistic and therefore off the table when it comes to a more darker, more somber uh, subject matter? And the more I thought about that, the answer became obvious again. No, of course not. And the, the main no. example I thought of was Ennio Morricone's score in The Hateful Eight. Oh, um, my God. Great. I mean, great example. Yeah. That, and it, it's just example. a slow build. And again, it, it goes with that tonal dissonance. It works with tonal dissonance, too, because at one point they're just like they're putting out like lines in the snow for people to be able to like walk. I mean, it's the most mundane fucking thing ever. They're just like walking out in the snow and it's just like, well, you also understand Ennio Morricone made his name composing for Sergio Leone's spaghetti Mm -hmm. Westerns and uh, how much of his most memorable and bombastic music was used in scenes where for the most part, men are literally just eyeing each other down. Yeah, just giving each other the stare down, and so it and then it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and it and it crescendos certainly. But one, I'll point out that it crescendos in such a loud way as to be almost grating and unpleasant. But of course, that's sort of the tone he wants to convey. Um, and this is something that the Beauty of the Beast th- song didn't do. It's it uses and relies upon a lot of minor chords, um, which. Mm-hmm. It's simple. It's like music 101. Minor chords equal sad. Uh, major chords equal happy. Um, mm-hmm. So that's not something found in, in Alan Menken's um, Evermore song that we're talking about no. here. Well, well. also, here's, here's I think, the fundamental reason why this sort of distance doesn't work in Beauty and the Beast. There's nothing 
in that film that isn't any anything less than a straightforward adaptation i mean that that film is not trying to go for any sort of revisionism <laughs> or or postmodern you know reimagining of beauty and the beast no yeah it's it's uh, probably the most loyal live action disney f- adaptation so far i mean to the point where they're you know cribbing huge like chunks of the dialogue mo- all of the original songs and then adding in some new ones um so this is definitely this this is going very straight faced into the into the story and the abiding emotion at that time is is despondency is is resignation that's what the beast is feeling it's the opposite of being loud and and showy like that was a that was a broadway song that was a <laughs> purely theatrical moment in the movie which is that's, maybe my biggest problem good way to, good way to yeah, call it yeah that was my biggest problem with it that was that was a show that was a moment born completely out of the traditions of theater and again jar you know and and totally ruining the sense of resignation and inner turmoil that the beast was experiencing at that time. And, and that, that really stuck with me throughout the original scene. So in this straight faced adaptation, it, the tonal dissonance is just that it's just dissonance. It's only, it, it, it's jarring. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't enhance the scene in any way. It just kind of ruins the emotional consistency, which is what that, that, which is what the film is going for. The emotional consistency of that was present in the original film mm-hmm. if this was some sort of like if, if they were trying to make some sort of comment on theatricality or you know the broadway aesthetic then maybe that song could have worked but again that's not the kind of film this was it was well i think even if very it just matched the tone of the lyrics or what the beast was feeling it would be a lot better uh, in yeah, that it respect. Would be better. I mean, I would yeah. still, and this is a point I want to make, it would still be unnecessary, which is a theme of a lot of the new yeah. songs in Beauty and the Beast, and that they just state what uh, doesn't, what didn't need to be stated was already implicit, which, I mean, a lot of things are better left unsaid. You know, when, when the Beast makes this sacrifice, it's abundantly clear that he knows, I, I mean, of course it doesn't work out this way, but he knows at that time he's never going to see her again. And and he's, not only that, he's going to be stuck a Beast forever, you know, and yeah. also dooming these people <laughs> to also, you know, lives of uh, furniture. <laughs> And, you know, Which is way appliances. more cruel in a live action film because they literally are turning into inanimate objects. I know. I'm thinking about that. I'm like, man, they really got the butt end of the deal there because he's going to be a beast, but he's still going to be alive. Scene. You know, I'm not even sure we properly talked about it, but that was the darkest scene in the whole film. They just, they all died. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like that kid knows whether or not there's a god. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like they're they're trying to play it off as like. Almost funny, like they have Ian McKellen just going, "Oh, it was an order to serve, I think, my friend." <laughs> turn back into a clock. Turn back into a clock. <laughs> it's it's horribly dark. No, but it is really dark, and you know, maybe that that's a different topic than this like tonal distance thing we're talking about. But it, it does apply uh, to the movie in general, and the whole point of this was I wanted to be able to. I wanted to be more sure in my opinion of this song. Honestly, that's really what it was. Without creating these like hard and fast rules, it's like yes, this song is tonally dissonant and doesn't doesn't make sense for the source material. Is that always necessarily a bad thing? Is tonal distance is bad? Can you do uh, you know building cr- building climactic uh, scores for dark material? Yes. 
and tonal dis yes you can and tonal dissonance dissonance isn't always bad yeah it I think was good with evermore too. and it was in beauty and the beast yes um and this is the longest correction apology uh of all time so that's of all time <laughs> well i think the, i don't know i think the correction apology part ended pretty early and then we moved on to but still <laughs> fuck you <laughs> yeah but still fuck you beauty and the beast i, I don't like you um yeah, I don't know. I mean, as I said, that song just has this like addictive quality to it that it's it's kind of like infested me. Uh, but I can't I can't overlook the fact. And if anyone ever brought it up to me, it's like, well, you know that realize that that song is it's totally all over the place. It, it doesn't match at all. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's still on your favorites list. It's still on my favorites list. I'm sorry I outed you, but I, I thought I had said that on air. So. Oh, maybe you did, and I missed it. Maybe I don't know. Whatever. In case I didn't already say it, I did. I added this song to my favorites list. All all cards on the table. <laughs> we, uh, uh, but we believe in transparency here. But I don't think it's I don't think it's all that great, and I did, certainly don't think it should win the Academy Award for for best original song, which a lot of people are saying it should. I I can't believe it. See, this is like this is it's it's fine quality for my for my YouTube playlist. <laughs> Uh, but, look, I just, the the response to Beauty and the Beast has been pretty lukewarm to be generous. Um, well, I mean, and, yeah, lukewarm critically speaking. Luke, I, lukewarm critically speaking. Um, I, I, I haven't checked the cinema fan. score, but I'm certain it did pretty well. Yeah, audiences have been a bigger fan of it than critics. Um, but critics have, you know, the people who praised it are generally like, you know, just tolerate it. And the people who uh, deride it really kind of go to town. But the one aspect of the film, it seems like in general, like you could actually say is getting praise are the new songs. And I just, I don't get it. None of them <laughs> felt, none of them felt, I mean, let alone, you know, not even necessary. None of them felt organic. None of them felt um, like they matched at all with the original, uh, with the original soundtrack. And, and, I know I'm saying this as someone who did grow up with the original film, but I feel like I could go into the new movie and pick out all the songs that were new new additions. They just don't match. Yeah, they I mean, seem well, superfluous. They seem, you know, like I don't know. And it's also interesting to note, though, that this was—I mean—it's also Alan Menken. <laughs> it is also Alan Menken, uh, although I believe a different lyricist. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, probably. Um, yeah. but still, I mean, this is, it's basically the same hand, the same main hand, the same auteurist hand, if you want to apply that theory to, to music that's going into these songs or at the very least he's putting his name on it. So, mm-hmm. um, you got to wonder really why that is, especially someone who's just been so consistently great and everything he's done, you know, these added touches didn't work. Yeah. Um, I mean, it just kind of seems. I'm not, like, I'm not just. What? I'm not asking you for an answer for that question necessarily. That's no, okay. <laughs> right. oh, okay. So what? What this is? Uh, they lost Howard. Um, so originally, the the music was composed by um, Alan Macon, Howard Ashman, and Tim Rice. Uh, but Howard Ashman died back in 1991 e. from uh, AIDS-related complications, which was the same year Beauty and the Beast came out. Oh wow! 
Um, so yeah, he was, I believe, the original lyricist, or at least one of the original lyricists. So, oh, um, I, I did read a couple reviews lamenting the loss of his voice. So, definitely. Um, I think we don't have any other segments, so we should just go into to I am not your Negro. Yeah, sure thing. Um, last year was a pretty great year for documentary wasn't it yeah i mean look, look i had i had three documentaries on my on my top 10 last year and not even the ones i expected to have necessarily no i mean and i had i had a eight hour long espn documentary as my number one film of the year and numero uno folks um, numero uno still can't believe it myself and uh and and th- that was i think that was the only documentary on my list but that's by no means uh, exhausting the huge surplus of great uh non-fiction filmmaking that came out last year there's um and i think one of the one of the docs that got kind of buried almost in all of the um you know all the ojs and the the 13th and uh you know uh, even nuts and tower you know we're kind of dominating critical conversation and i'm not your negro kind of went by the wayside um so again this was a film 2016 film that you know was up for the oscar but that we didn't really properly discover until this year um so i'm going to i think that maybe the good a good way to go about this would still be to contextualize this film uh, uh within 2016 and put it in conversation with the two other um oh yeah for sure he's on race that came out last year which were 13th uh and oj made in america yeah and i i also when talking about this documentary if you feel like you're super lost i i'll I'll be honest with you this main subject of this documentary before seeing this movie i had no idea existed which I realize I fuck with the syntax of that sentence uh, a lot, um, but the point is I had no idea James Baldwin was a person before seeing this documentary, um, and that's just I think he was a, you could say that's a failing of my education, I suppose. You know, growing up yeah, that I, I learned mean, about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and uh, you know, but James Baldwin, no idea existed, and now well, I, do. I will say this. I knew who James Baldwin was. I didn't read him, and this documentary did inspire me to read him, and and I think that. You know, of all the civil rights era literary figures, he might be the most distinguished one that I've come across. And which is not to say I am hugely well read on that uh, on that yeah. subject. <laughs> but just it, as a spinner of words, he is fascinating to read. And what I love about I am not your Negro, which again I, I didn't have the context of, of really having a deep understanding of James Baldwin going into it. Um, and, and what I appreciate so much about how the documentary is structured, it shirks. So yeah, this, this is, I mean, just to set it up, this is, yeah, I suppose the, that's important. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just want to make sure that this is clear before I go into any sort of critical analysis of it. Um, I'm not your Negro is essentially it, it focuses around James Baldwin's unfinished manuscript called Remember This House, um, in which he wanted to um, basically reminisce about three main civil rights leaders um, and their different approaches uh, and philosophies about race relations in America. Um, the first was Medgar Evers, uh, second was Malcolm X, and the third was Martin Luther King. Um, the uh, uniting factor between all three of them uh, being that they were all prominent civil rights leaders and all of 
uh, and all of them were assassinated. Um, and so buckle so up. The buckle up. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say is that given the complexity of reconciling all three of these civil rights figures' philosophies, um, I'm Not Your Negro does a really uh, – it, it's very committed to avoiding an easy answer for the problem of, of race relations in America. Um, it acknowledges the disparities between – Wait, you can't just give them a Pepsi? You can't just give him a Pepsi. Kendall, Je- you can't... Uh, <laughs> no, unfortunately, Kendall Jenner does not have the capitalistic answer to all racial problems in America. Hmm. Um, and it, in a similar way to... Um, and I'm sorry to do this, because Do the Right Thing, I feel like, is always the film that... The go-to reference for films about race, uh, American films about race, and I'm, I'm sorry to bring it up, um, but the film ends. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> well, I mean, it's you know, it's it's. I, I'm not comparing it stylistically or visually to I'm Not Your Negro. It's very very different. Um, but I I, uh, I did find it striking that uh, Do the Right Thing ends with two contradictory quotes: one from Malcolm X and one from Martin Luther King. Uh, one about the principle and the importance of nonviolence, obviously from Dr. King, and one about the necessity for, de- for violence uh, in defense of civil liberties. And that's kind of where this movie Up begins, next. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's um, like the sequel. The, yeah, it's kind of the sequel, or, uh, you know, but it does note that you know, basically by the end of their lives, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King had basically met in the middle. Um, you know, he had Malcolm X had been, uh, you know, very. He, he, he his legacy had kind of been defined uh, early on as the as believing in the, um, you know, that that white and black, uh, white and black people were just by nature irreconcilable. That that whites would always be trying to, um, underrepresent black people at the ballot. That they would always be trying to that they would basically be black people would always be the um, be the oppressed group, and that black people had to you know d- defend their you know their culture as uh, as an equal force to be reckoned with. Uh, Martin Luther King obviously was basically the inverse of that. Believed in uh, nonviolence. Believed in um, a Peaceful fundamental protests, brotherhood. Yeah, yeah, fundamental brotherhood. And uh, um, basically, these two serve as, as the, you know, uh, I guess the polar opposite to the spectrum in the civil rights uh, struggle. And uh, so, yeah, what does James Baldwin make of these disparate approaches to. And, and what does he himself bring to the conversation? Right. Um, I don't know. James, what do you. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, take away from this documentary? In, in all honesty, I've been really glad that you're taking the lead on it because it's very dense, uh, you know, it's and you you don't leave the theater in any, you know, feeling really satisfied and in, in the way that you don't feel like you've been given the answer to to race relations or even or even necessary a complete and compelling argument. I mean, I am not a Negro is I, at first I thought it would be trying sort of to complete 
that you know James Baldwin's writings when I had read more about it that it was you know based on an unfinished manuscript I was like okay well maybe it's trying to be like a thematic completion of that and it's it's also not you know I mean it, it certainly covers it but it's when when it comes down to it it's just as incomplete as the the original narrative the manuscript as mm-hmm. the yeah as the manuscript itself so but I, I what I did take away from the documentary is that that's not uh, that wasn't really a bad thing and in fact the documentary makes it work to its advantage to just to I mean even in the most basic ways you could say it's just about you know that this is a still an issue we're struggling with but at the same time it, it also brings a lot of new perspective to that that gives you more ammo to use not just a, a general a general statement and uh, what I had taken from they didn't use this word at all but um it seemed like <laughs> it seemed like a very early take on uh, the term we now know as white privilege. Um, yeah. To to me, anyway. Of course, I'm certain there are thousands of different ways you can really I, I interpret think, what he's saying. But let he, me frame it like this. He let me talks frame it like about this. altering. I just want to say this one part. He talks yeah, yeah, about, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's fine. He talks about altering, fundamentally altering the perspective of white people to yeah. sort of like look beyond their their own struggles and their own issues and that being sort of like the key to solving race race issues in America. So in my mind seeing that through the lenses of 2017 I'm like wow he's talking about white privilege right now. He is you you kind of took the word it was the word I was going to use was perspective hmm. um which which you used in your following sentence so I apologize again for <laughs> it's okay. trying to trying to hijack that. Um but yeah what kind of what comes out of James Baldwin um to me again as someone who only recently discovered him um from this documentary, he is very aware that white people don't see themselves, at least most don't, as oppressors. That to them, the you know, that that something within their own cultural identity makes it necessary for them to characterize black people in the way that they have in this in 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 this subjugated view and throughout his writing i think his goal first and foremost was to understand what i mean almost you know it's almost the same conversation we had about 12 years a slave where we feel like we were really praising the film for asking us to think about what a man has to do to his own sense of morality in order to justify the notion that people can be owned well, and, um, and abused once they are owned. and yeah. abused. Yeah. Um, so the, I, so yes, this is about white privilege, but I also I, like the abiding sentiment I feel uh, from James Baldwin uh, is basically a sense of pity for the, you know, the, the moral state of a human being who needs to, it needs to basically characterize these, you know, black people as Negroes, as lesser citizens, as lesser people, um, and who don't even realize they're doing it. Yeah, and, and that was—that's why I think white privilege might not be the, that has a much different connotations. Well, it, it's basically correct, but I—I'm I, only avoiding using that term because it has a modern context that yeah. I 
James Baldwin kind of helped form the proto philosophy for. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to simplify his argument. I don't want to equate the two. two. Yeah. I don't want to equate the two, um, but yeah, it's essentially a proto version of uh, what we now refer to as white privilege. But uh, and uh, but, in a way, but, I think but it's, it's, but it's lot, more. It's more. I think it's also a lot more profound. Yeah, it, yeah, it's and, and empathetic. It, it's more nuanced than that term alone would would communicate. Yeah, because I mean that term alone. It, in my mind, I think of it like, oh, you're white, so you have it better than everybody else. Yeah. And of course, as a poor person being told by, you know, upper class college people that, you know, I have it better than other people, you know, that it, it, it sort of like struck a negative chord for me. It's like, really, I have it better than other people. Great. You should have told me that when I was crammed into a two bedroom apartment and my mom was struggling to, you know, pay rent every month. You should have told me that. That would have been better. Um mm-hmm. So that's why I, even I sort of avoid that term in that case. But in in this one, it's less about white privilege and more about what we the word we've been throwing around, white perspective, which is yeah, yeah. you know, uh, sorry, I, I'm gonna borrow from you uh, Go ahead. about I'm honored, <laughs> just about uh, white people not seeing themselves as the bad guys, you know. Not you said you know they don't see themselves as oppressors; they don't see themselves as racist in any way. But what right. James Baldwin does is is very just carefully like poke and prod and and you know challenge that and say okay you know if if that's true then what you know then then what is this then what are we what are we living in right um I it's hard right? sorry I'm, <laughs> yeah it's very hard I, I mean, mean there's not I, I sort of feel not, like I'm, I'm I mean, not that not that this is a, a knock against a film or anything. It's great that a film creates conversations, but I, I sort of feel like I'm back in like like tenth grade, like AP English or something like that. You know, it's like I we just read this text and now I'm like in front now of class and it. having to give like a spiel about it. I mean, that's the thing is, it's it's it, this documentary basically serves to introduce you to the philosophies of one of the most prominent civil rights writers that the layman has no idea exists me i'm the layman so just, we're, we're yeah, not looking I mean, down I, on you again i had only heard his name that doesn't really mean anything i didn't mm-hmm. know anything about his philosophy um and one thing i really appreciate about what he uh, has to offer is his you know his great care in contextualizing everything within the culture at large um there is a this film is almost a uh, you know just as much about cinema as it is about civil rights there are <laughs> very much very much there are dozens of, of clips from old black and white films that you know obviously come off as you know they, they come off as racist today but <laughs> it does it the film doesn't ask you to just be offended by it and kind of stop there it kind of probes you and as james baldwin did when he mentioned i mean a lot of them are film clips that he specifically mentioned in his manuscript or in his writing um they will prompt you to ask yourself about what the cultural milieu was that normalized this kind of approach to um you know to race relations for example a, a black woman coming to a school classroom uh to fetch her daughter um, who is a white girl 
and her not wanting to reveal to her classmates that that she's black (laughs) that she's black a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't know she was black. And what I love about him bringing up all of this is not, again, you, you said it best that it's not asking us to just be offended by it. What I like is that he's telling he's telling the story of what it was like to see these depictions as a child, as a young black man growing up in, in this society where this is normalized. You know, he's saying this is this is how I saw it. And you don't get that as you don't get that as a white person. That's another reason why I'm saying that, like it's white perspective more than it is white privilege. But uh, yeah. well, and, was, and, those and, are very powerful segments. Well, and cultural perspective. You know, like one one uh, a point that's talked about a few times in the film, but not really made a huge deal of, is that Baldwin lived for a long time in France, and he oh, yeah, yeah. saw was... a very different uh, cultural approach to race, where mm-hmm. there, there wasn't this specter of slavery and of you know centuries of subjugation and racism looming over every single interaction a white person had with a black person um and you know just contrasting that with everything you saw in america and i I, i'm not gonna this isn't a quote because i don't remember it verbatim but he makes an observation early on about why he came back to america after living in france which he now viewed as his home which he or I, i guess at least he viewed as more more welcoming more yeah. <laughs> uh, where he felt more situated more, yeah, more uh, accepted yeah right um but then he he said you know i moved back home because this is still where all my brothers and sisters are this is where the people who help me form my identity still live and where they're subject to this this corrosive cultural identity um and uh, in terms of how white culture and white society use them um so yeah it's it, you know you even early on you get this sense of you know J- james baldwin being just as much a, a a sociologist or an anthropologist as much as he is a a, a commentator on race relations in fact yeah. if those terms are even distinguishable in the first place <laughs> um and that's why i find uh, that's why i found the perspective so refreshing it's not just a matter of <laughs> it, it 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 acknowledges the the messiness and the uncertainty it it's it's not as simple as oh good uh good oppressed bad oppressors it's an entire cultural milieu that you have to deconstruct and take apart and reassess uh in order to basically understand the motivations behind something because he understands that he is he, he here's what he did that uh, in, in a way to kind of reconcile the two extremes of the civil rights movement. He reconciled the fact that he needs to communicate with white people while never, never letting go or denying that he feels a great deal of aggression and anger towards white people. Yeah. No, he, he said that on he, several occasions. He says, like, yeah, he, he says at one point, you know, I try, try really, really hard not to hate white people. Um, um, and, and he, but he acknowledges that, you know, this is, you know, this is something that together, we, that we need to evolve as a culture in order to address, but he also acknowledges the difficulty of speaking to the culture that has allowed this to perpetuate, and in fact, that that defines itself in some way by this oppression. And uh, I don't know. I just found that an, an incredibly nuanced and unique perspective that I had never heard before. And, yeah, and that's the thing. I don't even. I don't even. I hope that I'm 
doing this material even the slightest bit of justice, although I have the sneaking suspicion I'm not, which is why I just got to say I strongly recommend you see this movie. It's not out in theaters yeah. anymore, but it's going to come to VOD somewhere. If you're looking to like better yourself, <laughs> so to speak, yeah, I- or become more enlightened or, or at least learn a new perspective, then please definitely see this one. And I, I also wanted to, because you said you wanted to talk about this in the context of the other documentaries as well. Yeah, I, I only in the sense, and really, I, I think I mostly meant in, in the context of 13th, um, because I actually, again, am going to put 13th uh, through <laughs> the ring. A peg below. <laughs> a peg below, simply because uh, 13th, 13th has a way of feeling very urgent and important right now, and very momentous, and something that you need to see because it's, it's you know, a, a really pressing issue, and uh, you know, we need to address this immediately, and it's true, and it it yeah. does make a great job to that claim. However, I, I you know, watching OJ Made in America and watching I Am Not Your Negro highlights for me how much more nuanced the problem is uh, than just showing all of the ways in which the, for you know, as Thirteenth does, where the uh, criminal justice system marginalizes and imprisons and essentially re-enslaves black people, um, which. Again, it does, and it's true, and Thirteenth does a, a, an amazing job uh, illustrating those points. Yeah. But even if we were to go and fix that problem, it would a it would be wonderful. I would be very happy. <laughs> but it, it, it's not fundamentally addressing the problem, the cultural problem that got us to that point, where when when we don't have slaves, we need to craft our justice system around enslaving as many black people as we possibly can. Yeah, that's um, the thing. It, this is a symptom. Uh, yeah. You know, the mass incarceration, I don't, not to marginalize it at all, but it is a symptom of, a, of the underlying problem that I Am Not Your Negro tries to identify. Yeah, and, and if, you, if you if you ascribe one cause to it, and, and again, 13th was not going for this. 13th was not trying to be a huge cultural dissection uh, in the way that I Am Not Your Negro and even OJ and in America were. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mainly, it was about criminal justice reform, the need for it. And in that sense, it was completely successful. But in that sense, it's also a smaller documentary. And I feel like, uh, you know, I still feel as passionately about everything in that documentary as I did before. But I also, films like I Am Not Your Negro kind of help you, help me at least, recognize and acknowledge the far more nuanced complexity of the underlying problem of racial relations in America. So I I am applauding its complexity and ambiguity and its its, um, avoidance of easy answers, easy solutions. 13th the answers easy are answers. easy stop the, 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 <laughs> well you know the answers are complicated only in the sense that they would require a huge amount of government maneuvering yeah they'd be and, bureaucratically complicated uh, they'd sure. be bureaucratically complicated legislatively complicated but philosophically very simple um stop imprisoning black people yeah we'll, we'll uh, stop or, or doing I guess, so I guess disproportionately stop, stop doing so disproportionately and targeting them to basically invoke this loophole in the 13th amendment um <laughs> yeah um and yeah that that's and again i i agree with that but it's also yeah it's a more limited yeah i, I do uh, want to say it's though, a more limited that, subject i do want to say though that this this conversation shouldn't be construed as you know if you had to see one of these blah 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 
fuck that. See all of these movies. See all of them, please. All of them. Please. It's going to take and, you like and, like 10 hours, 12 hours. Most of that is going to be OJ. Um, yeah, but it's you're going to see a lot it. of OJ. You <laughs> see a lot um, of OJ. A lot of, a lot of and, Orenthal. And, and I will also James say Simpson. that, you know, we are... <laughs> I especially am not a cultural or race scholar. Um, I, I know there's nuance that's being lost on me, and I know I'm probably butchering many points that uh, James Baldwin made. Again, I was only introduced to him from this movie. And uh, so I, I, I do apologize if I have completely missed the points, but uh, this is this is what he meant to me in this documentary. And again, it, it, the documentary is constructed not in a way that explains James Baldwin, but that depicts james baldwin and I, I i really appreciate that so okay um i think we're ready to move on to our forgotten favorites so, segment i think so, so this, of others. this is one i'm very excited to talk about mainly because partly because it's a great film but also because it partly mimics the way that we are recording this right now ha. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean look it, it, what I've always said is when we do Forgotten Favorites, the Forgotten Favorites segment, you should have to prove two things. Uh, one is that the film is forgotten. Two, that it shouldn't be. And one yeah. is usually easier. You know, something like 99 Homes it made didn't make even close to back its budget, uh, didn't appear in many awards. Sure, it got some topless consideration, but generally speaking, this isn't a film that a lot of people have heard of, and, and of course, it can go even more obscure than that to some of our some of the other films we've done. Slide aside, the, I thought you said I thought you said topless consideration, and I, I know, and I know, I don't know if that's because and I just I just want that I just want that on the record. It's funny. <laughs> it was funny because I had a um, when I was working at Hardcore Gamer, I had a a segment called Top List Tuesday. Uh, where every Tuesday oh, I would do no, like James, a top five no. list, and of course, if you slur that together, it's just Topless Tuesday, which I mean, that sounds great. <laughs> I mean, wonderful. I'm not. I mean, is it like you topless? Like you just post topless pictures of yourself? Because I mean, <laughs> just because yeah. Hashtag Topless Tuesday. Here's my selfie, uh, <laughs> and then you get to challenge one person. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> God. <laughs> oh boy. Um, um, so no, we've but, done really obscure stuff uh, like Trick or Treat and uh, Ruthless People um, was pretty cool. Um, oh man, yeah. Just some films. Like, look, honestly, the, the the motivation behind this segment is really selfish because basically, it's it's just me and James recommending shit to the other one that the, we know that they haven't seen and that we want, uh, you know, that that we want to share in the experience with more people um that was also butchered sense but i don't care um and <laughs> we don't like syntax here at talking during the movie no not at all we, we're above it <laughs> uh, above it we are but basically <laughs> we, uh, we we just use it in order to you know introduce each other to new cool movies and i, I get to see a film that i would have never thought of before and then probably the same with james too so well, and, that's, and we are doing it selfishly but also we want to do that to whatever listeners we have hey see this movie you just watch it you've probably never seen it before and you're gonna be a better film viewer because of it you know you're gonna have a better time than you otherwise would um and so 
again, we do need to prove those two points. And it, like you said, normally it's it's easier to prove the first than the second. Uh, in this case, I am way more intimidated by the second point than the first. You mean way more intimidated by the first point? Or, I'm sorry, I am way more intimidated by the first point than the second. Yeah, um, and and I was too because, look, you had said, see the lives of others, and I was like, well, I've never heard of it, therefore it's forgotten. Um, right. <laughs> of course, in my but, perspective, is incredibly limited, and when I looked it up, yeah, this won the best foreign, Oscar for best foreign language Oscar, film. It's number 56 on IMDb's top 250 movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and if IMDb is, has enough vote, you know, if enough voters on IMDb have seen it, for it to qualify for the top 250, how forgotten is it really? Um, and did you, check, James, did you check Critics Top 10 on it? Uh, yeah, it was a lot lower than I thought it would be, though. But um, it was on the list, though. I believe it was on the list, yes. Okay. Um, hold up. Yeah. I'm going to pull it up right now while we're talking. But, uh, but James, you did say that you have an, an out for me, maybe, for this. I, I do have an out, because I was looking this up, and I was like, what? So, so here's what I found out, and... Maybe maybe you know this and you'll be able to stop me before, but uh, d- but don't don't be a dick. Um, I'll I'll try. So it won at the at the 79th Academy Awards, um, and it was up against After the Wedding, Days of Glory, Water, all three films I haven't heard of, and what? then one I've film that I certainly it. have heard of called Pan's Labyrinth. Oh. So, Pan's Labyrinth is your out because Lives of Others won over Pan's Labyrinth in 2006 at the 79th Academy and Awards. Guess which movie I watched in film class? It sure as shit yeah, wasn't the Lives of Others. It sure as shit wasn't the Lives of Others. No, and I knew it came out the same year as Pan's Labyrinth. I didn't. It did not register with me that it beat Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, it, it didn't beat Pan's. It, it didn't even register with me that Pan's Labyrinth didn't win whatever year it was nominated in. <laughs> right. I think Roger Ebert said the minute he saw Pan's Labyrinth, he put it number one on his list of 2016 movies. Oh, wow. <laughs> he just knew immediately, right away. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> by the way, the lives of others is. 41 on critics top 10 41 okay so it's just squeaked in the, the the top 50 there yeah uh pan's labyrinth is number four mm-hmm. yeah and uh, so that yeah. is sort of my main argument for it and not that well, there's only room to remember works. yeah not that there's only room to remember one of these but people only remember one of these <laughs> yes and, and the thing is though i like this film wasn't initially recommended to me by not even necessarily a film inclined person. It was just someone I knew in college and she, you know, really was urging me to see the lives of others. And it took me until after I left college way too long to actually <laughs> watch the film. So I waited a long ass time, but I, you know, and I'm not in contact with her anymore, but I want to retroact- retroactively thank her. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, so it was, it, people know about it, but it is definitely not in the cultural forefront the way like pan's labyrinth is you know if you're to point to one defining fantasy film of the last 10 well i actually uh, a little over 10 years now uh crazy enough um it's probably pan's labyrinth and look if you were to point to the best film of the 2000s it's either this or there will be blood it's probably going to top most people's lists yeah and um yeah again you you this film was prominent enough to be taught in your film class yeah, in my so, film class specifically on on foreign cinema. 
I do have a theory about why the Last Brothers praise for it might have dimmed a little bit. Um, it's and I don't know. If this is really true. I, and, and sorry, the praise hasn't dimmed. It's just the awareness of it. Um, this isn't really true that uh you know people are necessarily going to latch on to this fact but i do think it's kind of interesting this director has only made one other feature film besides the lives of others <laughs> i did look follow- this up actually i'm sure you saw this his only other film so far although that does seem to be changed is uh the tourist uh-huh. from 2010 with johnny depp with the- with Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie, the one that got Ricky Gervais in trouble at the Golden Globes because he said it was shit to their faces. And basically proceeded to use that as the prime example for why the Golden Globes are bullshit and probably Again, yeah, off. a film that was nominated, right? I think that was actually a nomination. Yeah, it was nominated for Best Film at the Golden Globes. He's like, yeah, this is a joke. Stop buying these awards. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so- and look... He's not wrong, that's for sure. He's not wrong. I the, think that's the film, what's I mean, about, don't take my word for it. The film got, I think, like a 19% on Rotten Tomatoes, something really it's in, low. It's in, it's in the red on Metacritic, so not good. But <laughs> it, I admit I haven't seen The Tourist, but I do find it funny and that you know this, this guy's only other film is this critically maligned joke, basically a punch. <laughs> And uh, it, it is most remembered now culturally as a punchline. So that might have done, a, and he hasn't made a film since. But that is going to change now. The director Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, um, which is an amazing name, uh, <laughs> out with a, a new film, his first in seven years, later this year. And like The Lives of Others, it is also about the GDR regime, the East Germany regime, uh, in the days before the Berlin Wall fell. So. Uh, Man, I have just like a. I went on a, like a roller coaster of stupid when I was watching this movie, um, because I almost thought like when I re- realized the totalitarian like underpinnings. Do you think it was Nazis? No, no, I didn't think it was Nazis, but I was. I okay. thought it was alternate history. <laughs> oh, I'm like, no, wait. After after World War Two, like everything was fine in Germany. What? I'm like, oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No. I'm like, oh yeah, that oh that didn't God. happen. <laughs> it is kind of funny though, because we completely overlook this part of German history where it's very much a regime. Well, and, yeah, and, it, I mean, and of course in Germany, it's very culturally significant. <laughs> yes, um, and again, this is a very Nazi-esque society in in many ways, more in the sense of the the totalitarianism and the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Anyway, this has been enough of a preamble. I think we've done a sufficient job of defending number one. So let's get into number two by actually talking, uh, getting into the details of the lives of others. So I put it forward. I'll uh, kind of introduce it, Mm -hmm. reading off, not reciting, but having a little help from from an official summary. So uh, basically the film takes place in the early 80s in East Berlin uh, and uh, focuses on a uh, Stasi officer. Uh, named uh, Jared Weisler, who uh, becomes suspicious of the preeminent East German playwright at the time uh, and questions his loyalty to the Communist Party and uh, requests the head uh, the head of some security or you know basically the the party's you know chairman, I think, to uh, for permission to. Uh, serve to surveil. Put, 
yeah, to surveil this playwright and, and wire his apartment. And uh, over the course of the film, uh, uh, Weisler becomes actually sympathetic to this playwright who he does find out is actually uh, colluding uh, well, with other play. Oh, I'm sorry. Should I? No, no, I don't, I'm not trying to avoid spoilers. I mean, fine enough, but, uh, my point is to say that this sort of narrative actually unfolds in a way that takes upon different contexts when I think about it in, you know, 2017, you know, post, post 9-11, I should say, which is funny because this is a post 9-11 film, uh, but, um, when, when I think about the idea of radicalism, because while this playwright is under surveillance at the start, he's not. He's not working with anybody. In fact, he's sympathetic yeah, to their true. cause, and he shirks off anyone who is who. Well, he's sympathetic to the cause of the Stasi, I should say, and he's that's true. Uh, and he shirks off anytime someone isn't and gets in trouble. There's one time where that, someone that, gets like a travel ban, basically, and he's like, "Well, he had it coming," you know. <laughs> um, it's well, only. And, 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 it's only after he realizes the extent of the corruption in the GDR government that he starts to sort of stir rebellion in, in such a way. And it made me think about, like, you know, people being radicalized, the idea that, you know, no one is, no one is born a terrorist or, or born an yeah. enemy of the state. You know, they become but, that but way. He basically, he basically has to become antagonized. He becomes antagonized by the Stasi's own uh, measures taken against him. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, that is a good point, and I mean, even you know, a, a, he has a friend uh, who is a uh, a blacklisted director, although he can't actually use the word blacklisted, uh, named Albert Jerska, who um, had basically been banned from directing plays in East Germany uh, for you know due to subversive material, mm-hmm. and uh, he talks to the minister about this at a you know at a party uh, after one of his plays uh, debuts and you know the minister has some vaguely reassuring words that are clearly not serious i mean he's like you know oh there's always right to hope hope is the last thing to die like you know clearly right. with no intention <laughs> of ever letting this director work again um but he visits him and gives him acts as if it was a reassuring because he used the fact, of course, you're right to hope. Or he used the, the sentence, you're right to hope. Uh, he delivers it as if it were some sort of good news or hope that uh, that Jerska would be allowed to direct a play in the future. So, yeah, he is not an enemy of the state. And uh, only upon seeing the effects of, uh, you know, this oppressive regime on his artist friends, uh, Jerska, commit suicide uh he is inspired to collude with other playwrights uh to sneak a manuscript across uh across to west germany and have it published about the um lack of reporting on suicides in east germany um by the communist regime and and another thing that took on a modern context it sort of sounded like the reports that come out of north korea you know yeah um which and, and i imagine that's a lot of what it seemed like you know this place where no one goes in or out basically except under and they're heavily surveilled once they go in <laughs> well what i do appreciate about this film and uh, i i feel like that'll serve for now as a proper introduction although we'll probably we'll get into i think later plot developments as we talk about it sure. um he, the fact that th- this film really though isn't 
it, it's related to modern events and and current uh you know you know current geopolitical issues like north korea mm-hmm. only in the sense that these events have repeated themselves um have repeated themselves before um yeah. and since and since there's not like it, 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 this isn't even trying to be some sort of like clever winking uh you know acknowledgement of our current problems with surveillance and privacy and well no i mean and this came out well before and this came out well before the prison ed, well before I've, anyone knew who edward snowden was right but it's also not naive and, and understands that this is these are surveillance techniques that you know are not limited to east germany are not limited to nazi germany they mm-hmm. are um you know it, it is a constant struggle of uh uh, this is this constant uh, temptation for governments to overreach and uh, ensure. Um, I mean, don't they say that the 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 stated goal of this Stasi was to know everything? Yeah, to know everything, um, and and you know, with the conviction that they are only ensuring the peace and stability of their great country. You know, it, yeah. it's it's something that manifests everywhere. There's this you know uh, this strong nationalistic identity, and uh, so I. You know, it, it does a brilliant job of communicating that without being too on the nose about current events. However, what um, part of the reason why I uh, really want to highlight this movie is that I feel like, um, and, and honestly, this would have been a great forgotten favorite back way back when we were reviewing Phoenix, and unfortunately, I didn't think about it back then. Mm-hmm. But part of what made me latch on to this film so strongly is um, kind of uh, it, it, it's similar to why I praised Phoenix so highly when, when we saw it. It uses very cinematic language. In fact, film tradition, in order to communicate these, you know, to, to communicate the inner workings of these oppressive fascist governments. Um, and in this, and actually, in this case, it much like Phoenix, it borrows from another Hitchcock film. Um, <laughs> of course, this time being Rear Window. Rear Window, Rear- yeah. Yeah, well, what I... What I see this as is, yes, uh, these sort of these issues that we talk about um, being, you know, surveillance or what have you, you know, government secret secretism, if that's a word, they're they're (laughs) sort of tertiary. To me, this the lives of others is unmistakably a story. uh, Well, it's unmistakably Weasler's story, who is the the main person in charge of surveilling the uh, the artist in question, the the playwright, mm-hmm. um, you know it it it's amazing to me how it works as a character study of him and how it and how that character study informs the themes we're talking about um, and, and in Hitchcockian ways. I, I love seeing Weasler when he's like first. He's he's very he's clinical he, more than anything you would be, else. You would be hard pressed to find a man with a totter asshole. <laughs> yeah no i mean and there's a um there's a great scene i think where he's with another officer at a table and well and one even just sitting at the table is a moment of character because he sits at a table scene. not where all the other leaders are and his other person who's with him is like no the, the officer's table is over there and he's like socialism has to start somewhere so he <laughs> sits at the table that's mostly vacant except for some hooligans I want to call them, and one of them yeah, is. Yeah, why you call They're basically just normal kids in any sort of school environment. And I think yeah, that's and one of them is making see. a joke about the 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 leader, and it's a really benign joke too. Really benign, and actually pretty funny. 
It um, is funny. I laughed. And the person that um, Weasler's with puts him, reads him the right act after basically it's like you know you're you're done basically your career is over because you made this joke and blah 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 and then he reveals that oh he's just joking and the look that Weasler gives his 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 comrade <laughs> after after he says no I'm just joking your career is going to be fine is one I want to call disappointment like he actually it's, it it's, seemed to me that he actually wanted him to be that hard on him it's hard to read <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I, I think you're probably right. And I'm only saying it's hard to read because he is so stern. And I mean, for the first, I want to say third of the film, very unmoving in his facial expression. He is the perfect tool of the government. He does. Exa- he is exactly what the East he's German efficient as fuck is efficient as fuck. Nothing will get past him. And he, I, I mean, as this, you know, you can't even despise him because he, is he's so like you said clinical and efficient at his job that you know really you're just this is you know this is almost just his nature this is what he does um and there's a a scene early on where he um you know we kind of see his apartment and how empty i mean there's no one in it he has this kind of pathetic meal for dinner and you know watches tv completely by himself Mm -hmm. and you know it's funny because the temptation is to feel bad for him, but on the other hand, you 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 get the sense of his empty the emptiness of his life, but also that he might not really have a longing to fill it with anything. Like, <laughs> That's not a sure, very good way of putting it. Yeah, you're not sure if he does. And what's miraculous about the film is how uh, you know how much you are forced to project uh, into Weisler's motivation. At what point? It's never clear at what point he becomes sympathetic to uh gregor uh, uh georg dryman, dryman i'm yeah. just gonna I'm just call him dryman because i don't really know how to pronounce his i don't even name. know how to pronounce weasler's first name i just call him weasler 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 uh, the, um, the playwright dryman uh it's not really clear at what point he becomes sympathetic to his cause but he well, basically becomes invested in this man's story and this man's art in a way that a film spectator would become invested in a movie. Yeah, he's not, he, and that's what you want to be clear. He's not sympathetic to the cause. He's sympathetic to the person. Sympathetic very personally. This is not him secretly being an anti-communist this whole time and philosophically disagreeing with these Germany. Anti-socialist. Yeah, it, 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 sorry, anti-socialist. He is very much... Uh, it's very much the personal connection he develops despite the fact that there's this distancing uh uh, this distancing mechanization of the recording itself and he never actually interacts with dreisler um but but he connects with dreisler in the same way that an audience at a in a film or probably more thematically resonant in a theater piece would connect with the characters on stage um and i felt like it was meta commentary served in just the right amount. It was meta. It, it, it's it takes the same principle that you know one can uh, you know interpret from Weird Window, where mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart is watching all of his neighbors from his uh, from his room. J- Jimmy Stewart doesn't have that sense of isolation and loneliness, and Hitchcock uses this more as a way for him to uh, project his own personal problems onto other people through <laughs> the effect of the of the. Uh, um, of their windows but it's a very similar phenomenon though where like he does take the part of a spectator and there's something 
equally equal parts perverse and relatable about it. And I feel like that applies just as much to the lives of others as that's a real window. Um, I think the closest correlative I could think for Weasler's character in, in modern modern cinematic in the modern cinematic universe, um, in my mind, it's obvious, and that's Colonel Hans Landa, Hans Landa. You were going to bring up Hans Landa. Um, there's and also it, enormous I, differences, though. Enormous, and that's the thing. I, I, what I mean in correlative is to say, at the start, when I was watching The Lives of Others, I was like, oh, this guy's just like Hans Landa, the spy, but, instead but, of but the Jew the hunter. Thing. Here's the thing. Hans Landa is... He, he is appealing and alluring in a way that we are comfortable with a villain being. Or I guess maybe comfortable is not the right word because I think a lot of people are kind of offset by how charming. And, yeah, no, that's the thing. His uh, charm is just – it's scary and intimidating. <laughs> it is scary and intimidating. But it's, it's almost using a film language that we understand. And I think what's terrifying about, uh, about Weisler – uh, in the beginning is how uncharming and unfeeling and cold he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, th- honestly, well, I mean, the, the... His, his neutral face is the most, one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Oh, and I think uh, it's, a, it's all of this that we're getting from the, this early stages of his characters is exemplified best in the, the wire tapping scene when they're actually going through and tapping the wire of, uh, tapping the wire. I'm, 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 on, I'm Donald Trump all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, my wire's <laughs> tapped. Um, this movie's tremendous. <laughs> no. um, but uh, when when they're actually going through and bugging Dryman's house, uh, you know, just the way one the scene they don't speak a word while they're there while they're inside the apartment you know and the, the subtle signals he uses to direct everybody and the way they're just going about it and i'm going to keep using this word so clinically and even <laughs> even when they go go across the hall to the neighbor he recognizes that the neighbor's spying on him which is great when they first revealed it because they show the shot from across the hall and the lens is sort of obfuscated in a way to imply you, you, you almost think she's going to get away with it at first well you, you almost think she's going to get away with it uh, yes and then when he, they actually find them out i almost think like are they going to kill the neighbor oh, <laughs> but then he just he goes he tells her very simply you speak a word of this and your daughter will lose her spot at the university and then she and then she agrees to keep quiet and then he in, instructs his men to send her a gift yeah yeah right <laughs> send her a gift for cooperation like it's just, or whatever. And, and, yeah. it's, and it's in such a way that you he's not he's not getting any sort of you don't feel like he's getting any joy out of this but he's I, I, very I, good exactly. at it exactly exactly i like the fact that it defies the because here's the thing whether whether your movie villain is hans landa or whether your movie villain is like at, like literally Hitler, <laughs> you you have this notion of a villain being, I guess, a, a, an entity that wants something or that has a that that has a drive. You know, that's mm-hmm. all. That's the comfortable. That, that's the more comfortable way to think about a villain. Yeah, and even but, even in Hans Landa, toward the end, you sort of realize that you know he's sort of doing this all out of just self preservation you know right. not, how does one survive in the time he's but, living in but even if he was ideologically aligned with the nazis um he would have that drive he would have that motivation yeah uh weisler is like almost entirely at least at the beginning a um a, a complete tool and i don't mean that as an insulting person as a personal insult i mean that as like he is quite literally b- b- bred and raised to do nothing else but serve as this arm for the East German government. And without a very even, good one. Without even needing the 
motivation or drive to do so. This is just simply his life. Well, I mean, I, I, I sort of understand I, more and more that he's – sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, it's all right. I mean, it, and I don't want to imply you – know, what's brilliant is how much you are made to intuit how much you – know, what he is as a person because <laughs> yes. you understand that it's there. He must have a drive. He must have feelings that he eventually does, you know, you know, realize in his, uh, you know, you know, when he becomes invested in, in Dryman's, uh, Dryman and his girlfriend who they conveniently abbreviate to CMS, um, which I'm going to do now for all references to <laughs> CMS. Yeah. To this character. Um, uh, you know, he, he clearly had a, there clearly was a humanity to him, but that was it was just so suppressed and uh, you know had been so hidden by the bureaucracy, by this oh, you know totalitarian autonomous government that uh, he you know we we're kind of at a loss ourselves in terms of who this person is, if there even is a human being beneath this veneer of bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, it's it's very fascinating to kind of and, and I think yield it would you know make the film interesting to revisit not to you know further the cliche of saying this and of, of saying that we need to revisit a movie but to to kind of watch Weisler's progression throughout the course of the movie and I think what's brilliant about it is it this doesn't necessarily have to be Weisler's movie although I think it predominantly is but you can also yeah. read this from the perspective of Dryman. Because he is, in fact, the movie that we are watching a man watch. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> um, I do and his emotional to, progression is just as fascinating. I, I do want to say, though, that if I were to think about and characterize Weisler, Weasler, we go back and forth, um, that would be a nice like drinking game for this. How many times have we switched I think it's pronunciation? I, I, it would be hilarious, but I think it's Weisler. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's um, how I remember them saying it. Well, just how if I were to think about his character in the beginning and his motivations, I can think of nothing else. But in a way, it's uh, uh, profound in that he's quite simply a, a good socialist. He's someone who is bought into this this way of life that his government has has perpetuated. And it's funny to me that I think watching his progression as he sees as he's confronted with the inherent flaws uh, of of the government uh, that go beyond, you know, that ca- sort of counter his idea of what a good socialist can and should be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's when he gets more and more uh, involved, more and more infatuated with, and more and more sympathetic to Dryman. You know, I think about you know from the very early on his talking with his his superior about, you know, I need a you know this this will do good for our career you know and he's like is, is yeah. that why we were is that why we're doing this to, well that's the thing he basically that, asked him are we how, here to are we here to be good socialists or are we here to get promoted which is something he sees as very anti-socialist almost is that is that hauser i think who is his yes i believe so hauser it's a, uh, yeah I think no it's no hauser. paul hauser he's one of the uh he's the, the one of the traitors Oh, it's Grubitz. Grubitz, yes, you're right. It's Grubitz. Um, so Grubitz, it's it, it's funny because <laughs> Grubitz, uh, other than the actual fall of the Berlin, before the actual fall of the Berlin Wall, um, completely comes out on top. And his entire, I mean, his whole character is basically uh, self, 
self-aggrandizement and self-benefit. It, it's it's entirely for the sake of his own career that he does anything uh, that he does throughout the film, um, which is which is probably a more realistic approach to how a government bureaucrat goes about his job. He does what he does, not for a fundamental uh, philosophical belief and adherence to what they're fighting for, but for, you know, for the self betterment, uh, just to, to make it out in the end with a higher paying job and, and more status. And, um, and ultimately that's the philosophy that gets him farther in East Germany's, um, in, in East Germany's government than uh, Weisler, who has more ideological alignments with, uh, well, I guess that's not really even fair to say, but who just more unquestioningly and is, is more um, uh, effectively carries out the will of East German, of his East German superiors. Yeah, and, I mean, he's uh, like a traditionalist. He, he's in the that one. Respect. He's the one who identifies Dryman in the first place. He's the one who says we need to watch out for him when everybody else is saying. Well, I, I by everybody, I I mean Grubitz, who's <laughs> saying you know he's good. He's he's one of ours. He loves thinks East Germany is the best country in the world. He's the one who convinces Grubitz that they uh, they need to be monitoring him. Grubitz that kind of shirks it off, but then he goes and talks to the. Uh, <laughs> his to, uh, superior minister hemp bruno hemp uh, bruno hemp and um you know bruno hemp asked him what do you think of this man and uh he uh grubitz looks at weisler and just says maybe uh maybe he's loyal maybe he's not you might uh, benefit from surveilling him, yeah. him and we should look into him and uh it's funny because i i truly believe that if he had uh if he had said that he was clean and that he was clear and they didn't have to worry about him that the minister would have gone along with it that oh yeah probably minister would have been fine there's there's no i mean it's but because he kind of you know listened to weisler's tip and basically took credit for his incisiveness um you know the the minister uses as an excuse to say you know this is why we're a step above everyone else we have this cunning this intelligence and really it's just you know a willingness to do what's required of you in order to succeed in the government and, and to find enemies where you need to find enemies in order to get a cushy promotion. Um, and I, you know, one could argue that in this way, and I think you have argued this, that Weisler is, you know, just as much as he is enchanted with Dryman, he's also disillusioned by the fact that everyone around him is in, it seems to be motivated by such petty and personal goals, you know, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the thing. their I, I wanna... main I, want, I just want to make it clear that he's not becoming less enthused with socialism. He's not being shown the right well, ways. Well, that's, that's, you know? that's not even a factor. Like, I no, mean, no. For all we know, for all we know, it is causing him to turn against socialism. But like, it, it, it's funny how that's a non-factor in this. Like, the well, he, philosophical premise of socialism is non-present in Weisler's story. Well, I, I would say that he sees his superiors as acting fundamentally anti-socialist, which rubs right, in the fair wrong enough, way. But, all I'm saying is it doesn't it doesn't engage with socialism on a practical no, or no, philosophical or level. It's it's entirely reflected in how his you know co you know how his how his co bureaucrats and and superiors basically respond to various situations that that don't really show an ideological commitment to the cause, but more a you know a one of selfishness. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we keep saying too that he is—he becomes more sympathetic to Dryman. How this manifests is that he is 
he actively suppresses uh, mm-hmm. information that could be seen as damning to Dryman. So much so that uh, how this worked, how this had worked, is that there was both a day shift and a and a night shift. And uh, Weisler was the night shift when his, and then he had a guy working on days. And he actually, as he realized that Dryman was you know, going more and more astray, so to speak, he went to Grubitz, his superior, and saying, and said, you know, there's not really a lot going on here. We don't need two people. I should take on the role yeah. solo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, he sort of like puts his own, puts his own, puts his neck out there, sticks his neck out to try to, 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 to help <laughs> To help out this guy who was trying to, in, in essence, in spirit at least, betray his government. And, well, uh, you know, it's amazing I, I, how he went from point A to point B. Going going with the theme of, you know, this East German government mainly being used for, self, uh, for self-benefit, the minister, uh, Bruno Hemp, is a part of the re- – actually, you know, it's maybe not fair for me to say that he wouldn't have been interested in Dreisler because it's pretty obvious that the – only reason he really gives a damn at all is because he's infatuated with uh, his girlfriend CMS, mm-hmm. and uh, he, um, you know, basically has a forced affair with her. Um, that's well, it's basically she, like, yeah, have sex with me, and, have sex or, with me, and I'll leave you. I'll let you continue. Allow you She's an continue. actress. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll and of course, we've already established the world has already established very well that there are blacklists. So it, it makes but perfect sense. This guy can make one phone call and you will never work again. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the, the blackmail he is, he's imposing on her. Mm-hmm. And uh, at, at one point, Weisler is so... Um, because Dryman basically figures out that this is going on and pleads with his girlfriend to not go to him. You know, damn everything else to hell and just stay with me. And, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't give into this amorality, this, this blackmail. Don't let him, don't give him the last laugh. And she leaves with the intention to go see the minister, but she stops off at a bar and, uh, Weiser meets her there, convinces her to go back to Dreisler and, uh, completely to, I'm sorry. Dryman and uh, all these German names sound alike, you know. German names and um, and uh, to you know, completely uh, to, to basically completely frustrate the minister's plan in the first place. Um, so yeah, it's it, it, it's just very interesting how, um, when there is a human dimension to. Yeah, when there's a human dimension added to this bureaucracy, he, he sees more and more how, I guess, you know, superficial and, you know, selfish, ultimately, his, the government that he has been, you know, dutifully working for and serving without any, with, with, with complete efficiency and coldness for his entire life is, you know, basically just a, a tool for tool for, for self-promotion and and also i want to say how this plays out is so it's it's unmistakably a dose of meta commentary um because after after weisler does this he runs back to sort of like see what what happens to see if 
uh, see if she does go back to him or not. He runs back to the surveillance, and then he gets interrupted at that point by his his uh, day shift or, or uh, the his other shift, his partner in the in the job. And his partner's like, "No, I, I got it from here. I'll I'll you know you know I'll, you'll have my report in the morning." And it's just so unmistakably like someone who just really wants to find out what happens on the next episode. You know, he's like, right? he, can't, he cannot put the headphones down. He's like, and then when he comes it, back, it, it's, it's seriously yeah. like he's diving into like a juicy novel. And he's like, oh, yeah. uh, happy endings. You know what I mean? Well, it's not, it wasn't the ending, by the way. There is something very interesting about how he, he finds a more humanistic dimension to the people he is surveilling and, and the people he is suspicious of when he is viewing them at a greater distance, when he is in a, the first scene in the film uh, is Weisler in a really brutal multi-hour interrogation of a suspected collaborator to uh, a collaborator of someone who had escaped to West Germany. And uh, which of course helps with the, I mean, it, it aids my Hans Landa comparisons. Cause the first thing you see Hans oh, Landa in is again, a, a well a long film wise interrogation no absolutely um but in that one hans landa was again charming he was he was trying to coax and unsettle the you know he was keeping this um cordiality about him that kind of put the farmer off of his guard before he kind of got into the you know the more (laughs) incisive and brutal questioning this one is just entirely dead cold, icy, um, without a, an ounce of human feeling at all. It might as well have been done by a, a, a honed interrogation robot. And and uh, he, he has no sense of this man's humanity. He doesn't view him as a human at all. He views him as a subject. Um, so uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that he can do this without projecting anything onto the man that he is subjecting to inhumane interrogation for hours and hours and making him exhausted and tired and barely conscious and yet through this apparatus that's basically the equivalent of a movie camera Mm -hmm. he becomes infatuated with this artistic couple this playwright um and i don't know i i I, there is i think (laughs) um there is a meta analysis present in this movie about cinema and I, i don't think that's um I don't think the filmmaker tries to hide that at all, but I, I do think it's, it, it does, you know, beyond all the governmental, uh, you know, the, the critiques of totalitarianism and, you know, uh, of suppressive governments and all that. I do think that fundamentally there is a very interesting and uh, incisive commentary about how movies generate a sense of empathy in us that, basically not, even when nothing else does when literal human suffering uh evokes nothing but coldness <laughs> we might still be moved by a moving picture or in this case a a a radio show but you know it's it's the same uh it's the same it harkens back to roger ebert's conviction that film is ultimately an empathy machine it's yeah it it, it works as meta commentary without being i think explicitly postmodern text it's not um, there's nothing, you know, ultra deconstructionist or unique about. Well, and, and of course, you know, the way this no, movie is the way this movie is presented. It's, there's it's no very more straightforward surreal narrative. elements that a lot of the meta commentary films. No, it's have. Well, there's no. There's not any deconstruction except for the sense of how the cinema 
uh, influences our relationships with other people. I, I find that very interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, as as I said at the start, you know, there's there's all these things going on on the side, you know, commentary about radicalism, about surveillance, but ultimately this is a story of of how one person uh, loses loyalty and becomes empathetic, you know, and mm -hmm. about how and why and what happens then. So, and and in that respect, that's the there's a lot of narratives going on here, but that to me is the most compelling, and it makes the it makes the film worth recommending on its own, you know, even if that other stuff wasn't there. So, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and uh, no, definitely found this was found this was a justified pick for a forgotten favorite. Um, again, might not be our most obscure title, but uh, I think it's well worth checking out. And it's not like again, it's not one that's going to come up in every one of your film classes. So I just want to put it out there. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just want to put it out there that I think. Uh, more people need to check this out and uh i, I would put it uh i would i would put it in good company with phoenix and i think that actually it's it's pretty interesting to view them together they're uh they're they, they work pretty well as a double feature actually yeah that would be although be... it's going to be a heavy four hours yeah i was about to say that'd be fun to do and i'm like that's not the right word <laughs> no it wouldn't be that fun it'd be it'd be emotionally taxing but very uh uh very dramatically satisfying. All right, so that's a that's another forgotten favorite down um, in the future. Which here I'm gonna just gonna which which of this would you want to do? These are the ones that I've put forward. All right, um, and yeah, you're up next time, right? For, uh, for yeah, yeah, that's one? why I gave you those ones. So if you have one that you okay. want, all right. That you want to do more than the other, let me know. I can send you the list again. Uh, and but for our audience, we are going to do one of those five movies next time for a forgotten favorite and we we got more of these so it's it's going to be happening for a long time and we're really excited about it um yeah and basically it's been the most freeing thing to not have it to, to not require to bear any relationship to the uh to the, <laughs> the film, main the film main we're film reviewing, reviewing. Yeah. yeah so uh yeah i think that about wraps it up for this week um if Next week, uh, it's looking like we're going to try to do either um, Personal Shopper with Kristen Stewart, a follow-up of uh, uh, Olivier Asias' follow-up to uh, Clouds of Sils Maria from mm -hmm. a couple years ago, yep. and uh, uh, or Your Name, which has apparently become the highest-grossing film in Japanese history, beating out films like Spirited Away, and uh, is finally getting a wide U.S. release, so... Uh, gonna try and check that out um yeah anything else to uh to add for this week no no i mean uh, except for the obvious closing out of follow me on twitter uh, at jam cozy you could follow mike on twitter as well um, yeah my handle is michael Leiden 892 perfect um all one word all one word and uh, Talking During the Movie has a Facebook, uh, so check us out. Our Twitter is uh, defunct at the moment and will be for the foreseeable future. And as always, subscribe to us on iTunes. We are on iTunes, and I, I've heard there's a subscribe button, and uh, it works. So uh, besides that, it's it was... uh, pretty neat. You should <laughs> definitely push it. Yeah, see, I love see that what happens. button. 
Uh, besides any button pushing, it it's, uh, was a great show this week. It's going to be a great show next week. And as always, thank you for listening.